president and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. You note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion today is not tied to the offers of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Really an interesting week to be having the show today. We've got two great guests. Uh, the first part of the show, we'll be talking about economy, monetary policy, um, really with one of the leading academics focused on these type of issues. Um, Professor Siegel is going to be here with us for the first half hour. In the second part of the program, we're talking with Chris Gakesy, a Wharton finance professor, to talk about a conference coming up on September 15th that he's leading. Um, but Professor, really interesting week. The mm. markets, not much happening in the markets, but we had a lot of big news. We've got the two hurricanes. Now we've got Hurricane Irma coming down towards Florida. Um, we've got you know, the news from Stanley Fisher, who's resigning from the Federal Reserve. Um, what's your sense of what's happening? Um, and then we'll get mm. into the conversation with Dan. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting in how you, how you phrased it. A lot of things going on, but the market's been... Uh, very stable, uh, not much up and down. First, of course, Irma. Uh, uh, you know, we have estimates of, uh, you know, at the worst, $125 billion. Now, let me repeat what I think we had mentioned on previous shows when Harvey was hitting Texas. Um, $125 billion, I mean, that's more than, you know, that's more than 1% of GDP. But remember, that loss does not at all figure directly into GDP. Um, the only loss comes from the loss of services that are provided. Destruction of capital does not go into GDP. In, as we mentioned also, the rebuilding of such capital does go in. So you, in a way, you, you may actually ultimately get a boost from the rebuilding and then the re- re- restoration of services. Uh, service, uh, obviously, are going to be disruptive and lowered. I mean, we saw, for instance, from Harvey, jobless claims yesterday uh, jumped by uh, Surprising 60,000, 50,000 of that jump was from Texas. So 50,000 people applied for unemployment insurance above normal were put out of work. Obviously, their services are not being rendered now in, in the economy, although many others worked hard to move down there and move the, the goods in, in, in that particular um, area. Uh, so we don't keep our fingers crossed that uh, Irma doesn't prove his destructive as it might be, but clearly we'll know in a few days on that. Um, the second certainly surprised me, uh, Stan Fisher's um, sudden resignation. Now, um, uh, you know, as I've mentioned before, um, Stan was a couple years older than me. I knew him at MIT when he was going through as a PhD student, and everyone knew he was going to be a star. Everyone knew his intellectual capabilities, and I think his career uh, – has demonstrated uh, those capabilities. It's a great, it's a big loss, um, uh, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, his term was not up until uh, the middle of next year. Um, it was personal reasons. I understand that there is, there is some family uh, reasons that are compelling for him in, uh, in terms of, uh, and it's not a political move. Uh, because of disagreement with the Trump administration or anything like that. Uh, 
Um, we also got the news, interestingly enough, just within hours after Stan Fisher's surprise resignation, that um, uh, Gary Cohn no longer seems to be the leading candidate uh, for the Fed position. Uh, Trump being uh, least purportedly displeased with his, you know, criticism of the Charlottesville comments that Trump uh, had made. And that throws the door wide open. It certainly raises Yellen, who, as you know, I think is a very competent chairman. And um, uh, especially with the loss of Stan Fisher, um, I think it would be even more important for the continuity of the Fed for her to be reappointed. She is still my first choice at reappointment by, by chairman. Um, now, uh, the Fed, uh, uh, Stan Fisher indicated that it, it will be in the middle of October um, that uh, he will resign. Uh, that means he will be at the September 20th meeting. That's an all-important meeting. That's a quarterly meeting, a meeting where we expect the Fed to start uh, announcing some of the reduction explicitly of their uh, balance sheet, although no rate hike uh, is at all uh, expected. Uh, it also means that with his resignation, uh, the, the Fed positions go down to four, which isn't real. It's legal, but for certain decisions, they need five Fed board members. A full board is seven. Now, Trump has nominated Randall Quarles for one of those positions. I imagine that Stan Fisher's announced uh, resignation will expedite the Senate's confirmation of, of Quarles. I, there isn't a lot of controversy here, so I think that um, we will get back to five Fed board members um, uh, very soon, but that does put some pressure on uh, that uh, nomination to happen. So there's a lot uh, there's a lot going on there and then of course we hear a few hours after that or a day after that that Trump makes a debt deal and a budget deal uh with the democrats to delay basically by 3 months uh the uh, imposition of the uh, debt the ceiling uh and uh, uh continuing resolution for uh uh, the, the the payment of the budget, it sort of kicks the can down the road, if you will, to the middle of December. The, the Treasury can do maneuvers that actually um, can keep the debt uh, below uh, even um, until I understand the end of February. Um, but it does show that Trump can make a, you know, can make a calculation, hey, I don't want this to... You know, I, uh, uh, I'll make a deal with the Democrats. It's not like stone, you know, stonewalling all the Democrats on that, which I think shows some flexibility, which might be very, very interesting. There was a little bit of a revolt, but not much of a revolt among the Republicans. The uh, resolution passed overwhelmingly in the Senate, and from what I understand, uh, just within the last 24 hours, overwhelmingly in the House. So if he makes a deal, it seems like he's got at least a majority of the Republicans on his side. Uh, to do that. That could be very interesting coming up with respect to the tax deals. Um, on the other side, of course, we've seen the yields, uh, you know, talking about the Fed, on uh, the 10-year almost hitting 2.0%. Right now I'm looking at 2.06, but it got pretty close just before that debt deal, the 2.00, and uh, it, if it cracked below 2, wow, who would have expected that at the beginning of this year when everyone was debating whether three was too low 
for the 10-year, and people are talking about north of three, it may be south of two. This is really a big surprise. And, of course, with it, uh, the dollar continues its strong downward path. Um, uh, and the consequences of that, of course, um, you know, it's good good for corporate profits of the multinationals, to say the least. Whether that adds any in- inflationary pressures to the U.S. later on for imports is yet to be seen. So let, let wow, me, uh, lots, lots happening. Yeah, let me bring in our guest here. We have Dan Sickle, who's a professor of economics at, at Wellesley College's, uh, College, where he teaches about macroeconomics. Um, and t- in a week where we have Fisher's resignation, you know, Dan is... His background, he worked for many years at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. He worked contributing through the analytics support to provide the, the Federal Reserve Board, the FOMC's uh, an- analytics to go into their decisions. So really, we couldn't have a better guest to join us and talk about this week. Dan, welcome to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. Delighted to uh, be here. Uh, uh, you know, we definitely want to get to some of your research on productivity. I know we, uh, we talked about a continuation of our, our bull bear debate on the economy with uh, Gordon and Moker, but, and we definitely want to get to that. But given the sort of the, the kickoff of the show, just talking about the news with Fisher, maybe any, uh, any reaction to what Professor Siegel said on, um, from your insider's view from being at the Fed, anything you see from Fisher and how you see you know, the key issues shaping up for next year? Yeah, so I think Stan's resignation, I can think about it kind of with near-term effects and then what are the broader issues at stake. And I think in terms of the near-term effects on monetary policy, it won't be much. I think the FOMC has been quite consensus-driven recently, and I think Stan's departure, uh, his resignation in mid-October, isn't going to shift that consensus much. I think it does raise the broader issue, though, of one more vacancy on the board, and I think uh, highlights the great uncertainty about what direction the president will decide to go in terms of uh, nominees to fill the uh, both Stan's spot uh, as vice chair and Janet Yellen's spot when uh, her term uh, expires in uh, end of January, uh, and also the other uh, openings on the board that Jeremy mentioned. And I think there is considerable uncertainty about that. Uh, I would echo what uh, Jeremy said, that uh, Janet Yellen has been a terrifically competent uh, chair, and I would certainly support her reappointment. I think it would be uh, very helpful for uh, the conduct of monetary policy. I would uh, speculate helpful for market stability if she were reappointed. I think the broader issue and uncertainty is given some of the other appointments that the president has made, the risk that he might choose someone from uh, who with with uh, limited monetary policy experience, and that could, I think, be a source of some turbulence, uh, difficulty at the board, on the FOMC, uh, and with monetary policy, which I think would have spillover effects for markets. Dan, what do you what do you think about the reports that uh, that he is? shying away from Gary Cohn, which was uh, kind of viewed maybe as a leading candidate, and uh, now apparently not. Um, who are the other people you think are in play? And, um, uh, I mean, what, what would your reaction be to, to Gary Cohn um, and uh, uh, how, he would, how he would be had he still been a viable candidate for the chair of the Fed? So Gary Cohn, I think, would be a relatively mainstream selection, uh, has broad experience in financial markets. I think he does not have a lot of monetary policy experience, 
but my impression is that he's a quick learner and he could uh, he could get that pretty quickly. It is a challenging job for someone to step into who does not have monetary policy experience. So just think about the press conference that Janet Yellen is going to do on September 20th after the upcoming FOMC meeting. To handle those kinds of questions, to answer them in a sensible way, to answer them in a way that conveys the consensus of the FOMC that doesn't through some mistaken phrasing or wording, uh, alarm markets and cause volatility is pretty tricky. And for someone to step into that role and within the first uh, first couple months that they're there, for them to step out in front of the financial national press and do that sort of press conference, I think is not an easy task. Uh, I think we Gary Cohn would... I mean, I, I let me just echo that. Actually, even the experienced people such as Bernanke and, her, and his successor, Jenny Yellen, made some rookie mistakes, remember, uh, early on uh, in terms of uh, uh, a couple comments that were, and then they righted themselves quite quickly, but even someone very experienced and who had been on the board years before sometimes finds themselves off guard to the questions or comments that are made. So, uh, you, you know, your your point is so well taken. For someone who has never been in that position, it could be, really uh, likely that that could happen. But, uh, I mean, uh, I, I also worry, I mean, uh, we, we, you know, Stan Fisher, obviously, extremely competent, experienced in monetary policy, uh, as high as you wanted to go. Janet Yellen, of course, had been on the board for years and at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and all that. Um, with Fisher, uh, I was hoping Fisher would stay six months. If Gary Cohn or someone without that experience, that you would have someone with that experience being vice chair and that influence uh, there. Um, now, with the, the vice chair pick and potentially a new Fed pick, uh, you, you worry about that. Although I will agree with you on consensus. There have not been dissents this year. Uh, last year, there were a couple by Esther George, Kansas City, but on right. generally, um, Yellen is very good at leading, leading a consensus-led uh, FONC. So at this point, she doesn't have to deal with a lot of. Uh, with let a let lot me just of tell you guys who uh, who's on Predict It right now. So if you go to Predict It, which is one of these online sites, I sort of. Um, you know, you have to bid to see who you think is going to win. Right now, Kevin Warsh is the lead at 31 cents. Janet Yellen at 26 cents. Gary Cohn is at 11. John Taylor at 8. Glenn Hubbard at 5. And Thomas Honig at 2. So I think, you know, before Cohn yeah. was the, I mean, the short Kevin lead. Kevin Warsh was on, was on the Fed. I pretty outspoken about certain issues. I don't know if he has Trump's ear on a lot of others. Uh, Dan, do you know him well? Uh, I do know him from his time on the board. Couldn't say that I know him well, but I yeah. uh, certainly have heard his name mentioned. I think the name I most often hear mentioned after his is John Taylor's. Yeah, John. Uh, John Taylor, especially for those uh, listeners, uh, we, we all know, but the Taylor rule, um, which has caught the imagination of the Republicans in, in, in Congress. Uh, they they actually have bills that the Fed needs to address that rule, not necessarily implement it, but address it. And it comes from John Taylor. I always thought, you know, look, just after Trump was elected, that he would have been the leading candidate. And then, of course, uh, you know, his name faded relative to Gary Cohn's later on. But now with Gary Cohn seem to be downgraded, his name is, 
coming up again. And Yellen, of course, now is is well. She's she, uh, as, as uh, Jeremy Schwartz just mentioned, a close a close second uh, on on that. Uh, uh, I, 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 I don't have any insider information. What, what, what would be your guess, Dan? If you, you know, if you had to pick one, that he uh, is, is there one you think is most likely? So I would say that Janet Yellen is the most likely, but I don't think that that probability is. You know, it's it's probably somewhere around fifty percent. Uh, I think again. It is very hard to read the mind of the president, and I think it's just unclear what direction he's going to choose to go. And, uh, just a general question: Is it if if he does not, he's not mandated to make a decision by the end? She could act as acting if he delays for whatever reason. Suppose he gets into a budget battle or something drags out; he has not made a decision. Um, there isn't any fixed term in the same. There's a four-year term, but it can be extended. Is, is that is that correct? Is my understanding of that correct? Uh, that she could be kind of continued until a decision is made. So her term as governor certainly continues beyond the end of January. That's the end. The, the January deadline is mm-hmm. the end of her term as chair. And I think if the FOMC chose for her to kind of continue in a leadership role, she could continue to do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing that uh, that would be a source of significant uncertainty and that the president would be under a lot of pressure to either appoint her or, or choose someone else. Maybe, uh, maybe we could take the conversation beyond uh, so the, the Fed here, because I know there's a lot of, you've done a lot of research on the economy, and they're going to be grappling with a lot of these big issues in terms of that. The big picture issue is, what is, uh, you know, I know Professor Siegel likes to say, it doesn't matter how quickly we raise, it's really the terminal rate that, we, that matters, and, and that's all tied to what we think the, the long-run growth in the economy is going to be, and we have this bull-bear debate on, is it a sort of slower-growth economy versus will productivity come? So, you know, we're talking with Dan Sickle of, West, of Wellesley College, who's worked with Bernanke at the Fed on, on sort of analytics here. Dan, maybe you could just outline, how are you a bull or bear on, on productivity, and do you side more with, with Gordon, who's the more pessimistic, or, or Moker, the more optimistic? So I side with uh, Joe Mulcair on the more optimistic side. Uh, I think uh, if we think about why productivity growth has been so slow in the last uh, 10 years, especially so slow in the last six or seven, we'd want to think of that as a pause before a uh, time when the productivity performance will improve quite significantly. And, and what are your reasons for that? And, and pinpoint, uh, you know, maybe your disagreements with, the, the, with Gordon about a permanently lower rate of productivity growth. Sure. So, so if we look back at the history of productivity uh, and we look back at the broad history, the, the, the long-span history for the U.S., there have been alternating periods of faster and slower growth. Uh, we had a period of slower growth from the mid-70s through the mid-90s. After that, we had a period of faster growth fueled by the Internet uh, spread of PCs and so on, and very good productivity performance from 95 to mid-2000s. And then since then, uh, productivity performance has been uh, quite, quite poor. So big question, have we re-entered a period of kind of stagnancy? Or are we in a period of pause? And I think there are a number of reasons to think that we're in a period of pause. Uh, one is if we try to think about what's, what is the pace of innovation now. 
and we try to think about how best to measure that. I think a really deep dive into those measures uh, indicates that um, innovation is actually continuing at a very rapid pace. And I actually think that just looking out at the world and observing how quickly the world seems to be changing and how quickly the tools that people are using are changing uh, is kind of confirmation of the fact that we're in a period of pretty rapid technological change. I think there's an argument that's sometimes made that businesses aren't investing in the future because they're not optimistic and don't see a very bright future and that weak investment is going to fuel weak productivity growth. Again, I think if we take a broader perspective on how to measure investment and think more completely about intangible capital and intellectual property and think about making some adjustments to the GDP accounts to more fully reflect the dynamism in business, particularly focused on intangible capital. Uh, haven't the, they done that, Dan? I'm sorry to break in, but didn't the, uh, didn't the GDP statisticians take that criticism I into break, account and just, uh, was it two years ago, added intellectual capital yeah, as great. an investment measure? Yeah, great point. So really starting um, in the early 2000s um, from a paper that I wrote with Carol Corrado and Chuck Holton, um, the folks doing the GDP accounts have been moving in that direction. And you're exactly right that uh, a few years ago mm-hmm. they added some categories of intangible investment into business investment, uh, the business investment category. So the big one that they added was research and development. But there are others that they did not include which were those that you uh, thought so, were important? Yeah, so the broad categories would be what, what we would have called organizational capital. So think about the value of uh, Amazon's uh, fulfillment uh, technology or think about Walmart's uh, supply chain technology. Uh, so there are huge investments that companies make in those kinds of, uh, those kinds of technologies or databases uh, or brand equity or training of certain types. So huge investments that businesses make in these other types of intangible uh, assets, which are very important for the competitiveness and success of, uh, of businesses in the modern world, and those categories are not included. So uh, uh, Now, of course, to argue that growth has slowed down, we would have to say those are relatively more important to the economy today than they were, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. And so if one re-spins the numbers, including the best available estimates of those additional categories, then business investment looks a bit better, quite a bit better than in the official estimates. So I'd make the case that businesses are investing in the future. We're just not quite looking in the right place. And I guess the final piece would be to just say I think the history of innovation and productivity is that it takes a long time for uh, innovation to filter through and to move the needle on aggregate productivity. So think about uh, electricity. That's probably the most famous example where the key technologies were in place 25 years before there was a big aggregate productivity effect because it took businesses quite some time to learn how to use those. What about the mismeasurement issue that's often brought up, and particularly the plethora of free goods um, uh, and, and all and all that? I mean, and I think you've done some of the questions on on the measurement issues. Uh, it's often been criticism in the computer sector; the quality yeah. adjustments are inadequate. Well, what is your feeling on that? So the mismeasurement issue is really interesting, and it is just a little bit subtle in that on the mismeasurement point, I agree 
uh, with the point that there is uh, important mismeasurement um, in the GDP accounts of the high-tech sector. Um, and I've done some work on that. A number of other people have done work on that. And, and I think, you know, there's pretty compelling evidence that, that we don't do a good job. That even, even for the categories, we'll come to some of the new things that aren't in the GDP accounts, but even for the categories of items that are in the GDP accounts, even for things like computers and semiconductors, uh, I don't think we do as good a job as we should at measuring those. So I think uh, those categories are growing more rapidly than what we would, uh, that is investment in those categories is growing more rapidly than what we would see in the accounts. That being said, we have to think about, so what's the inference that we draw from the evidence of that mismeasurement? And there are kind of two questions. Uh, one question is, does it explain the productivity slowdown? So is the step down in productivity growth from the mid-90s to mid-2000s to the slow pace now, can that be explained by the uh, mismeasurement? And there I think the answer is no, it can't. Uh, there was mismeasurement in the past, too, so we aren't having more mismeasurement to get us to explain that step down in productivity growth. Second question, though, does that mismeasurement uh, lead us to drawing incorrect conclusions about the pace of innovation? And there I think the answer is yes, it does. And if we make adjustments for that mismeasurement of these key technologies and products of the tech sector, and we make those adjustments, then the kinds of inferences that economists draw about how fast is multi-factor productivity growth rising uh, come to very different conclusions, and we'd see much faster pace of multi-factor productivity growth in these key sectors, uh, suggesting that innovation, as I had mentioned before, that innovation is actually proceeding at a pretty rapid pace in those sectors. Uh, even though we aren't seeing that showing up in the aggregate productivity numbers, if we, again, try to drill down and measure innovation, pace of innovation in the best way we can, that mismeasurement suggests that that pace of innovation is faster than what we might think from looking at the official published numbers. Dan, I mean, I wish we had really a lot more time with you. We unfortunately only had the first half hour of the show. This has been you know, a great conversation, and we need to talk, spend more time with you next time. Um, it's, it, it, we really appreciate you taking the time with us here today. Oh, this was great. I really enjoyed it. Delighted to uh, you, Dan, be able to for joining us today. Great. Professor, Thanks to both Professor of you. Siegel, thanks uh, for always a, a, a great discussion. We're, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Um, after our short break, we're going to be talking with Chris Gakesy uh, about the Jacobs Levy Center's conference coming up, as well as his academic research. Um, and, and, you know, it's been a, a great discussion with Dan here on the Fed, on Fisher and productivity in the economy. And we will be uh, definitely having Dan back to talk more. Um, you've been listening to, again, Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. Uh, we'll be back after a short break. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. And my guest this half hour is Chris Gakesy. He's an adjunct professor of finance here at Wharton and also the director of the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. Uh, he's also an investment practitioner taking the research he does on the academic side and applying it to the real world. I'm excited to have Chris join me here. He's going to talk to us about this year's Jacobs Levy conference here coming up on September 15th in New York. Um, they give a prize every year. This year, the prize went to Stephen Ross, uh, who passed away this year. Uh, and Chris is going to talk about what he got the prize for, a little bit about the Jacobs Levy Center generally uh, and the agenda. You still have time to register for the conference again, September 15th in New York. Uh, Chris, welcome back to our program. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Um, so maybe you could start off, uh, tell me a little bit about the Jacobs Levy Center uh, at a high level, and then we can go into the, uh, the prizes and, and your agenda coming up. Yeah, I'd be very delighted to. Uh, the center, which has a formal name, perhaps 
one of the longest, but it, it matches its import and its uh, uh, its influence in industry and the profession, I think. It's called the Jacobs Lee Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research, which you nicely mentioned. We have a specific uh, focus and dedication to advancing quantitative finance that sits at the intersection of both theory and practice. Uh, we do this through the creation and dissemination of knowledge, uh, through uh, uh, conferences like the one you described, through uh, supporting research, uh, through uh, uh, focusing on Ph.D. students and supporting the dissertation uh, activities. Uh, the Wharton Jacobs Levy Prize for Quantitative Financial Innovation was established in 2011, specifically to focus on in a, a, a very um, uh, a nicely identified uh, innovation uh, in a very specific paper that introduced an innovation that had impact in practice and in theory. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we've been broadcasting from your conference the last few years. Last year, we had Bill Sharp on, uh, which was one of my favorite interviews of last year. This year, we're going to also be broadcasting live from the conference next week, again, September 15th. Um, talk a little bit about this year's winner, um, Stephen Ross, and what he won the, uh, the prize for this year. Yeah, Steve Ross is the winner of this prize, and as you mentioned, he tragically passed away. Uh, he really was one of the giants on whose shoulders we all stand, both, again, today in, in academics and practice. Um, in our uh, upcoming conference, Steve will be recognized specifically for his work in the area of multi-factor asset pricing uh, that he originally introduced in a paper in the Journal of Economic Theory in 1976 called the Arbitrage Pricing, uh, sorry, the Arbitrage Theory of Capital Asset Pricing. Uh, it's a model or it's an approach that's widely known as APT, and uh, most of the core investments texts in the MBA and many undergraduate schools uh, include substantial treatment of the APT. Uh, it, at its core, building on work of those like um, uh, Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, Gene Fama, and many others, uh, it essentially provides a kind of structure for judging the impact of market, macroeconomic top-down, uh, bottoms-up determinants, factors, as they're called, um, that drive asset returns. Uh, it allows uh, for multiple sources of both risk and return in the form of risk premiums or risk premia uh, to be specifically described, accounted for, estimated, and used uh, in portfolio construction, in manager selection, and a whole host of risk management uh, activities. Yeah, you have one of the uh, collaborators with uh, Stephen Ross, uh, Dick Roll, who's also going to be speaking at the conference. And there's also a paper back from the, uh, I think, 1980, where you had Ross and Roll collaborating again on this sort of arbitrage pricing theory. Um, what do you think is, is Dick covering at the conference next week? Dick will be covering, uh, by way of kind of a remembrance of Steve, uh, his interaction with Steve, the life of Steve Ross, uh, elements of his contributions uh, to the literature. You know, Steve... Uh, he died in March at the age of 73, published more than 100 articles uh, that are scholarly. He, he authored one of the most important and long-lasting, enduring um, textbooks on corporate finance um, uh, with Ross. Uh, it's called Ross Westerfield, and now Jaffe. Uh, it's used in uh, business schools around the world. Uh, he founded a number of firms. He really was um, just um, an originator of, uh, of important ideas in academics that also uh, saw him having a foot in, in practice. And Dick will cover, uh, again, uh, remembrances of Steve, uh, his life, and elements of his contribution. 
We're talking with Chris Gakesey. He's the adjunct professor of finance here at Wharton, as well as the director of the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. It rolls off the tongue very quickly there, Chris. Um, talk a little bit more about what else you want to think of people, you know, want to register their interest in quant finance. What else should they be thinking about uh, some of the highlights of the conference coming up that you want to highlight? So the conference is going to see, as we have uh, sort of come to expect and really mostly enjoy, um, uh, a series of academic heavyweights and, and heavyweights from practice. Um, like you mentioned, Dick Roll. Uh, Dick Roll is just, you know, again, yet another one of the many giants on whose uh, shoulders we stand, uh, again, both in practice and in, in, in academics, uh, having worked um, across the span of topics. Uh, so you'll, uh, uh, folks will have a chance to hear him. Uh, the dean of the Warren School, uh, Jeff Garrett, will be uh, introducing the conference, which is always an honor given his busy schedule. Uh, Bruce Jacobs and Ken Levy, again, uh, uh, who uh, helped establish, we really established the center and, and to whom we're grateful for their vision, uh, will be um, uh, in attendance and, and discussing the contributions of Ross. Uh, we'll have papers on uh, macroeconomic uh, risks for traditional now traditional factors known as value momentum uh, and across various asset classes. Uh, for example, uh, Andrea Mitrash uh, from Toulouse Business School will be giving that paper. Nikolai Rusinov, uh, who's the software associate professor of finance at Wharton, will be the discussant. Uh, we'll have folks like um, uh, John Amricks, who's the head of the quantitative equity group at Vanguard, Giorgio DeSantis, director of research at Kipos Capital, a hedge fund in New York. Uh, Wai Lee, uh, quantitative um, uh, expert and managing director at Newberger Berman, Jeff Serrett from Two Sigma Hedge Fund in New York, uh, on a panel to talk about uh, theory to implementation of factor models. Jen Binder, uh, sorry, Jen Bender from State Street uh, will be in attendance talking about factor timing. Uh, Josephine Smith from BlackRock will be discussing. And I'm just going through the agenda. Yeah. And it's uh, sort of pedantically, but you, you've got to you know, sort of absorb it to, to see how amazing this is. Michael Roberts talking about the history of the cross-section of stock returns, uh, uh, the effectiveness of, of factor models. Mark Reigenham. Uh, who used to be a senior managing director and global head of active equity at State Street will be there, uh, and many, many others uh, who have been involved both in the life of Steve, uh, it, both as students and collaborators and colleagues, as well as those who have inherited uh, so much value from him. The irony about his model um, is that it really is kind of a beta model, uh, but has delivered so much alpha <laughs> in the lives of, of the rest of us, and that will be the topic of the day. That's awesome. Um, you know, in, we just had Nikolai Rusinov on our program a few weeks ago to talk about a lot of his carry factor research. Uh, so people listening to the podcast will re remember discussion with, with Nikolai. Um, you know, the, the so much of the conference agenda is also focused on areas that you've done a lot of research on. So this idea of value and momentum, I know you've done a lot of publishing and this factor-based. Um, so they've got this new global macroeconomic risk model for value and momentum. Any opinions that you want to share on both what, you know, your research has said about value and momentum and then also you know the, the new paper that they're presenting yeah sure i well i can talk about it generally and about its impact uh you know i wrote my doctor dissertation on factor models again <laughs> uh, yeah. inheriting so much goodness from steve uh and in fact i'm lucky to have had conversations about it with steve over the years uh the apt by the way was invented at penn uh and and written uh when he was a faculty member as i mentioned uh and uh the impact i think was quick there are other competing models and competing methodologies for understanding how multiple sources of risk might matter and how we can tabulate them and use them and understand them 
them. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, it was one of the first efforts moving in the, in, in, in the theory uh, following the fundamental work of folks like Marquis and Sharp. Um, uh, others like Bob Mern have different versions and different approaches, but uh, really kind of the APT uh, is the one that most folks know. Uh, and I tested it um, uh, in, in very specific ways in my doctoral dissertation, focusing on things like fat tails, outliers, which of course these days uh, people tend to think a lot about. Um, and uh, uh, the research that I've done in the last 20 years has focused on different incarnations of it, thinking about the value premium, thinking about not just value and growth in a portfolio in their individual roles as style uh, representations, investment style, but think about, thinking about the spread between the two. And I think that's where most of the information is, broadly, conceptually. Um, you know, even when value and growth during periods of crisis become highly correlated, the spread between the two becomes very informative. Uh, and that really is kind of my view of the world and the view that's uh, at the heart of the APT, which is that uh, 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 investments that mimic those sources of risk may deliver a risk premium and which, if they're combined in the right way, can provide value. Uh, I would say what we've enjoyed since Ross uh, wrote his work, and, and many others have uh, been working in the same direction, uh, is, is a kind of, we've enjoyed a kind of a democratization of the risk factor model approach so that now we can uh, talk about things like value and growth and the difference between value and growth as a factor uh, we can, or, or as a correlate of returns. We can think about quality and momentum. Momentum is something that we're spending a lot of time on in the last few years price continuation and value continuation, return continuation. Turns out, in equities, for example, historically, the spread between high momentum, high continuation, and low momentum, low continuation stocks is stronger than the spread between stocks and bonds themselves. It's an incredibly powerful effect, and Mikhail Samanoff and I wrote an article published in the Financial Analyst Journal uh, one summer before the last, showing how if you go backward in time, you know, back a couple hundred years, that effect is strongly in the data. It's strong before folks published it. It's strong afterward. And you could argue that we don't have great models for it, except it's so powerful. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a correlate of macro effects. It's a correlate of micro effects, liquidity, information flow. Um, and it's, it's, it's critical for anyone to understand, except when you pick up the, you know, uh, your traditional finance literature, non-academic. Um, until now, you really haven't seen uh, much detail about it. It's been used, but it's been used behind the green curtain, so to speak. Yeah, and when you think about what are the factors that should be known to all investors, you know, just using something as momentum, which is just the price of the asset, everybody can see what the price of the asset has done. Should just the price alone contain this information that's predictive of future returns? That's right, right. So why does price, scaled or not, right? Most value measures are scaled price ratios in some way. Why should they matter, A, in the cross-section of expected returns of assets? So in other words, uh, how we tell the expectation of asset one versus asset two as a function of this kind of uh, quantity or, or measurement, uh, or how, why should it matter over time? It's been around, um, this sort of a trend-following idea, uh, but also now in innovation in the cross-section of expectations um, for a number of years. You know, in the old days, people might call that alpha. You know, the, you know, use this idea and beat the market. Today we're understanding that it's probably so very systematic 
that maybe we can't call it alpha. We have to call it beta or really acknowledge that it's something systematic. I will tell you, uh, the models leave us a little bit dissatisfied as of yet, although there's some great models that have been written to explain it. Uh, they're not perfect. Uh, although I will say this, uh, if you're investing, you should probably be paying attention to momentum one way or the other. Um, so when you think about the, the sort of this latest research on macroeconomic models, I mean, what is, when you think about just value securities and momentum securities, you're looking at uh, the characteristics of the stock or the asset class. How does macroeconomic data come into this in, in the latest paper that, that, that we're talking about at the conference? Well, okay, so, so the idea behind uh, macro, so let me, let me go back to the, some of the early tests of the arbitrage pricing theory. Uh, the, the original uh, test, in, in most notably in a paper by Chen Roland Ross, uh, again, Dick Roland, Steve Ross appearing at our conference, uh, focused on macroeconomic effect, effects. One of the key features of the model, as a technical academic idea, is that shocks to expectations um, are what prices assets. If asset markets are efficient, then surprises are what give rise period to period to variance, uh, a variation or risk that you get paid to bear. Uh, and uh, prices would accommodate uh, that risk. Uh, in the original paper, by the way, things like uh, inflation shocks uh, or, or, or uh, shocks to growth are those kinds of things that might ultimately um, affect prices. Uh, and that turned out to be very important for a number of very famous asset managers. Uh, what's arisen since then is kind of a, kind of, I want to say, a bottoms-up kind of idea, um, where we think about what some call firm characteristics or correlates um, that uh, give rise to um, uh, very nicely measured but unexplained, like sort of from a modeling perspective, unexplained uh, clustering and returns. Like value stocks look different from growth stocks, and value stocks in the long run outperform growth stocks. Uh, value countries outperform growth countries in the long run or in an expectational way. Value currencies outperform value uh, uh, growth currencies, rather. Uh, value commodities outperform growth commodities. Now, I'm not dogging growth, okay, because there are periods where growth is a very good investment. Like this year, in the last 10 models. years. Right? You get, all these things can, uh, over the long run, you get these value tr value effects, but it can be painful over periods of time, right? The short, uh, the, the short run, we've got a, a growth market right now. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and um, you know, for, I mean, for decades, they can, they can be different. Yeah. Um, there are, there's a, there's a, a kind of uh, explanatory powerful sum uh, for some momentum characteristics like liquidity, which sounds macroeconomic, of course. Uh, and then there's an open question about what other uh, traditional APT, a.k.a. Ross's model, factors, and how do did, how did, how did they and whether they explain momentum. These are specifically shocks. I'm going to use the general and Ross incarnation. Shocks to economic growth, measured very often by industrial production. Industrial production today is something, well, I think it's probably less than 20% of GDP, but it's measured pretty well. A lot of signal there. Unanticipated in inflation, changes in expected inflation, interest rates and the slope of the term structure of interest rates, uh, the spread on defaults, uh, or, de or defaultable bonds, say, versus high-grade bonds. Uh, it turns out that there's a, a kind of cyclical characteristic to those that it's obvious, and there also turn out to be a cyclical characteristic to momentum uh, and to some degree uh, to valuation. Uh, at the end of the day, um, uh, the papers that we have here are, you know, focusing on um, a reuniting, if you will, of the top down and bottoms up, bringing back, bringing to bear the notion of 
how uh, momentum and value vary across time, but also across the business cycle. Uh, and that's a very important thing to uh, bring to, uh, to your, any investment conversation or portfolio construction, because what you'd like to be uh, is diversified across the business cycle, right? You'd like yeah. to be diversified not just on the average day, but on the worst day, if you can be. That's great. Um, so maybe, you know, Chris, we're, we're talking with Chris Gacy, who's a professor of finance at Wharton and also the director of the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. Um, Chris, maybe talk a little bit about how, you know, you've tried to apply some of the academic insights. You know, you do a lot of practitioner work as well. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about your firm and how you're trying to apply these academic insights in, in, into the different business models that you guys have. Yeah, one reason, thank you for that. One reason I'm so uh, excited to be involved in the Jacobs Levy Equity Management Center uh, in its pursuit of uh, quantitative financial research is that I do try to span both sides um, of the fence, academics and practice. And I think many academics do, uh, and many great practitioners come from an academic background. I, I, I tell people today there's no such thing as non-quant, uh, because even if you sort stocks into, you know, green and blue, uh, that could actually be formed as a regression. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, the advent of big data and other technologies, including computer technologies, make us all um, quants, one way or the other. Uh, also, you know, Bruce and, and Kent's famous firm, uh, Jacobs of the Equity Management, um, you know, that Bruce and Ken do the same thing. So it's nice to be working with uh, those folks and other folks at Wharton who are uh, so uh, like-minded in, in assessing the importance of practice. It gives academics ideas, and academia, of course, gives those in practice ideas. Personally, at my firm uh, Forefront and my family office, GKFO, we apply these techniques um, in investment strategy construction. Some people call it um, uh, uh, um, uh, risk-based investment allocation, which I think really is the right way to think about uh, investments. Uh, uh, we uh, use it in uh, investment manager selection, uh, trying to think about the best kinds of investments that reflect the factors that you like. And we also, from a very high-level top-down perspective, construct uh, uh, portfolios from you know, very small you know, few thousand dollar style portfolios to uh, portfolios for sovereign wealth funds, uh, or at least we have conversations with sovereign wealth funds, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in size about being factor diversified. Why? Who cares? Why do you want this, this, this different kind of risk language to be a part of your portfolio construction? Because again, when you can bring in different kinds of risk to the equation, you build better diversification across states of the world as well as across time, and you find unique forms of diversification if you do it well. Now, to do it well is tough, but in a world in which we have low yields, uh, a challenge immunizing liabilities and, you know, the t paying for retirement and those kinds of things, and a world in which low yield may not necessarily uh, let us spend um, or even get paid for uh, duration in our portfolio, which is diversification. In other words, when diversification doesn't pay us, we have to pay for diversification, at least in yeah. real terms. Um, diversification along the factor grounds really has a lot of value. You know, actually, you just brought up another interesting topic because a lot of the times we focus on equities as a factor lens, um, but here you're talking about, you know, the, pro the challenges are just the macro environment with very low interest rates and thinking about talking about factors really applied across asset classes, but to fixed income here. Um, where do you think the industry is in terms of applying factors beyond equities? And as you're talking to these different clients, whether it's the family office side, the sovereign wealth side, uh, maybe you talk a little bit about who's your sort of core client, but where do you think you are in that in, in, in the need for this factor rotation or factor uh, framework across asset classes beyond equities? 
Yeah, so I think it's moving to every asset class. It's every asset class that I know of, including uh, the hedge fund uh, side of things, which I've been talking about for a long time. In fact, I published a paper in 2006, and I only mentioned because I published in 2006 uh, when the financial crisis, uh, you know, uh, was I would argue it was fully in bloom in subprime and elsewhere. But I, you know, sort of telling folks in a manner of speaking, that they should be better diversified across risks. Um, 2006 was a key date, because once you publish it, it can't be taken away. <laughs> but uh, it's broader than that. Um, it's now um, um, it really every asset class that you can think of, even in exotic ones, right? So, you know, how do we think about things like uh, merger arbitrage or legal receivable financing or cat- appropriate these days because of the hurricanes, unfortunately, catastrophic reinsurance? Uh, uh, provision. Those are businesses that involve systematic risk, and the risks economic that they bear um, that I think you could say drive their risk and reward ultimately um, can be characterized using these factor models. So what we're doing is trying to understand and apply how they're uh, connected across asset classes, stocks for sure, but also now bonds, bonds within countries, across countries, within currencies, across uh, currencies, hedged on hedged. Uh, commodities for sure, uh, and we have, uh, as an academic profession, you know, a thousand years of data on some commodities, um, uh, but also in the uh, you know, so-called exotic areas of, uh, of alternative investing, uh, trying to extract or, or pre-specify factors and then combining them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, investing in something, because you have to invest in an asset class, you have to invest in contract securities and so on, uh, but understanding the risk exposures. For sovereign wealth funds, uh, who have lots of money to put to work, uh, who, who are very naturally, uh, whether they like it or not, uh, in many cases correlated with global growth, to be diversified against it is really uh, valuable. For mom pa America, uh, you know, we have a lot of clients at Forefront who are themselves financial advisors. We have kind of a models program uh, for them and their clients. Uh, we believe that, you know, mom pa America should be uh, well diversified. Uh, they won't get the same uh, portfolios, probably, in, in a sense, um, you know, like the sovereign wealth funds or large pension plans. Uh, but the, the democratization should serve them, and that's what we try to do. We've learned a lot, uh, and now it's um, it's being democratized. That's great. Uh, maybe you know we have maybe time for one more question, and just sort of wrapping up, um, we try to bring it down to that mom and pop, and sort of for general practitioners. When you think about the standard portfolios, and maybe you know the most common standard portfolio I hear of has a 60-40 equity bond allocation. I mean, talk about how much your model portfolios would differ for somebody you know looking at you know their traditional advisor and, and how if they went to forefront, what their portfolio might look like that's, that's very different from that standard 60-40. Yeah, sure. You know, the answer is it always depends, uh, which is a non-answer. But uh, the, the fundamental idea behind what is traditionally called the balance portfolio, because it's capital balance, 60-40 sounds like 50-50, 60% of your wealth in stocks, 40% in bonds, uh, has to these days acknowledge uh, sort of old results, but now especially important results, that most of the risk of the 60-40 comes from equities. And that's generally because, uh, on average, equity vol, equity risk, is, uh, is larger than bond risk. 
Uh, you can uh, move their risks to be similar if you leverage bonds or if you allocate more to them. Uh, but, of course, that may reduce returns. Um, that's a particular uh, approach called risk parity. Uh, our minds, in our minds, there are multiple ways of doing it. Uh, we could still uh, allocate to growth-related assets uh, in a dynamic way. That's, and we call that dynamic growth. Correlated with traditional vanilla portfolio 60-40, but then augmented by risk extension, factor extension, and so on to be better diversified. You could take an endowment-style approach. Uh, in which you build in multiple asset classes, multiple countries, multiple risks, uh, similar to the style of an endowment, university endowment, say. Uh, and then you could have a closer allocation um, to a sort of equal-weighted view uh, across those risks that I just mentioned. Um, we ma ma manage models and portfolios across all of those and other, uh, using other methodologies as well, or other approaches, and then targeting different levels of volatility. I think that targeting of volatility through diversification and also risk management, volatility forecasting, and so on, that's what we do, is incredibly important. And that's because the 60-40 portfolio is not only risk balanced, its risk varies all over the place. And that's because the equity piece has volatility that varies so much. It goes way up, for example, in financial crises. It comes down afterward, typically asymmetrically quickly. And typically investors um, get punished when volatility of an asset class is rising. Not always, but almost always. Um, and so what you'd like to do is find a way to ameliorate that, to find ways to compound from higher lows, to be better diversified in bad states of the world, which is sort of the topic of our conference, at least in part, um, and ultimately be liquidity providers, if you can, when times are uh, stressed, as opposed to liquidity takers. Buying businesses at the bottom, for example, would be a yeah. great thing if you could do it. Uh, and that's, that's what those model approaches do, uh, ultimately trying to provide sophisticated, state-of-the-art diversification in investment management, but uh, for you know, institutions, as well as clients who would otherwise not get access to it. Well, Chris, I appreciate you taking the time with us here. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be talking with Chris Gacy, the academic director of the Jacobs Levy Center. The conference that they're hosting is coming up again next Friday, September 15th. Uh, it's been a great conversation about how they're applying academic insights to portfolios here that Chris is doing at Forefront as well. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patricia Hall, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.